It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 364 for October 13th, 2013. This week, Windows 8.1 will soon be available, and Microsoft seems to be attempting to make everybody happy. WebRoot appears to be a good choice for protecting your computer. I'm checking that out right now. As seems to be typical of companies with lots of money to spare, Facebook threatens to sue a programmer who has improved Facebook. In short circuits, snake oil disguised as gold, and Adobe wants you to change your password right now. Windows 8.1 will be available for purchase on the 17th, and I presume that the Windows update process will make the update available about that same time. This is a free upgrade for Windows 8 users. It addresses some of the silly problems that pundits have been so vocal in condemning, the missing start button, for example. It's a reasonably painless upgrade, and there are some worthwhile enhancements. You might ask how I know this, because Microsoft had announced that people like me would not have access to Windows 8.1 until it shipped on the 17th. Well, Microsoft did a little bit of a flip-flop. There was so much blowback after they announced the release code would be sent only to manufacturers and not to technical partners such as those with volume licenses or members of the soon-to-be-discontinued TechNet or MSDN. Enough blowback that Microsoft finally released the RTM version. So, I had an opportunity to take a look. Some of the key features available in Windows 8.1 Enterprise include those that are intended to improve use in business environments, such as better controls over access to data, stronger management when employees bring their own devices into work, and overall improved security. Some examples. Corporate IT staff can now create a manageable corporate Windows 8.1 desktop on a bootable external USB drive. That drive can be used to support employees' computers when they're brought into the office. The IT department can control the layout of the start screen on company-issued devices to ensure that key apps are easily accessible and IT can prevent users from customizing the start screen. And files and applications that users can access on a system can be restricted by the IT staff. General availability for Windows 8.1 is scheduled for October 17th. That's when everybody will have access to the new version and to versions other than the Enterprise version, which is the only one available right now. But is this the real RTM version I'm seeing? Seemingly not. Microsoft says that the final version will be released in mid-October, and it will be more polished. Now, this raises the question, at least in my mind, about what the heck Microsoft has provided to the disk manufacturers. It takes time to manufacture, box, and ship disks, and to prepare computers for sale. So what exactly has Microsoft sent to the manufacturers. Do we all receive a release-to-manufacturing version, or do we receive an almost-ready-to-release-to-manufacturing version that's going to be a bit more polished in a few days? I don't expect an answer to that question. Don't hold your breath. As with most large companies these days, Microsoft simply speaks in riddles. 
The update is easy enough, though. Just download the 3.7 gigabyte file and either mount the ISO or burn a DVD. I decided to create a DVD because I needed to update a desktop and three notebook computers. The desktop is a custom-built machine, and the two notebooks had full versions of Windows 8, so those installations went exactly as expected. The third notebook still has the manufacturer's OEM version of Windows 8, and the installer would not allow me to retain any installed program. That computer is going to wait until the general availability date for Windows 8.1. So in mid-September, when Microsoft made available the released manufacturing version, or what they're calling the released manufacturing version, I downloaded it, burned the ISO image to a DVD, and ran the installation process first on an older 32-bit notebook. The process completed successfully in about two hours. I then ran the 64-bit update on a desktop system, and it was complete in less than 30 minutes. Yes, the new version of Windows can boot directly to the desktop. Oh, goody. And it can bypass the start screen. This saves users a single key sequence. Windows key D. But the silly installation messages I complained about when I installed Windows 8 are still present. Apparently the grumbling pundits and Microsoft think that messages such as these are really useful during an installation. Setting up a few things. Setting up a few more things. Getting ready. We're setting up a few things for you. Taking care of a few things. Let's start. You know, the problem with messages such as those is that they're absolutely useless. If something goes wrong, how can you tell a technician what was happening when the failure occurred? Microsoft seems to like to copy things from Apple, but it copies only the worst things that Apple does. Apple's operating system does not need file extensions, and it doesn't show them. So, years ago, Microsoft decided to hide file extensions by default, even though file extensions are really important to Windows. So now this same you-don't-really-need-to-know-what-we're-doing philosophy that came over from Apple is still being used by Microsoft. The pundits didn't complain about this, though. They were so fixated on that missing start button. Well, it's back, so now maybe the pundits will please just sit down and shut up. But to get back to the installation, my installation disk worked on systems that have full Windows installations. It won't work on systems with OEM versions of Windows, but I presume that Microsoft and the OEMs will have the update process worked out by the 17th of October, and by that time it'll be pretty much transparent. You'll see some screenshots along the way to show you how the installation process proceeds. It really went quite well. And once you get to the start screen, you'll find that Microsoft has added several gaudy reminders about what you can expect if you hover your mouse cursor in a corner. Previously, the Windows 8 Metro interface had only two sizes for icons, large and huge. Version 8.1 adds two sizes, absurdly gigantic and normal. You'll see examples of all of these on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And of course, if you want to save that single key sequence, Windows Key D, you can instruct Windows to display the desktop by default. Right-click a blank area of the screen and choose Personalize, then click Taskbar and Navigation from the lower left section of the dialog box. Choose the Navigation tab and you'll have a variety of options to choose from. One of these is Replace the Command Prompt with Windows PowerShell. I recommend selecting this because PowerShell is far more powerful than the Command Prompt. And then there's Show My Desktop Background on Start. I recommend setting that, too. 
You'll also find several other options here. To check them out, just select one, press Apply, and see how the various choices work and which ones you like. But of course, the most important point is the Start button is back. Microsoft removed the Start button from Windows 8, and anyone who spent more than about 12 seconds trying to learn how to use Windows 8 probably realized the Start button really wasn't needed. But enough people complained to Microsoft the company decided to return the Start button. Unfortunately, they did that in the worst possible way. The Start button now opens the Start screen. Oh, you expected the Start menu to return? No, that's not what you get. So now there's this utterly useless Start button that takes up some of the most valuable real estate on the taskbar. This is just about as useful as handlebars on a pine tree, and there's no way to hide it, at least not yet. For those who were never quite able to figure out how to make the desktop appear, Windows 8.1 allows users to boot directly to the desktop and bypass the entire start screen. This is another improvement that really won't be needed by people who took the 57 seconds or so that would be required to understand the start screen. So now, thanks to the expletive-deleted pundits, we have the start button. But all it does is open the start screen and take up space that I could use on the taskbar. Why doesn't Microsoft make it possible to suppress display of this useless button? And how much time did Microsoft's programmers waste on these efforts when they could have been working on something that really would have improved Windows 8.1? If you do opt to view the start screen, you'll find that you can have your own wallpaper as the background image. I found this to be welcome, even if it's not particularly useful, because it makes the computer feel more like it belongs to me and not to Microsoft. Even if you spend most of your time on the desktop, as I do, you'll still probably work with some of the Metro or modern apps, at least occasionally. Contrary to what some of the most knowledgeable pundits seem to think, these apps are useful to those of us who primarily use computers with keyboards and mice, not just to those people who have touch-enabled devices. The Metro interface now offers icons in four sizes. Previously, we had large and absurd. Now there's one that's even larger. And surprise, after expecting to hate it, I decided that I like it. And there's one that's smaller. I've actually found some apps that can be improved by the larger icon, but I'll probably use the smallest icon most of the time. In fact, the whole start screen concept is beginning to appeal to me, and I might actually decide to reduce the number of applications that I store on the taskbar. One of the Metro apps should be called out for special mention. It wins the Most Improved App Award, Mail. The previous version was wimpy, and that's really being kind. Useless would have been a better characterization. Mail now looks a bit more like Outlook than it did before. You can add your contacts to a sidebar on the left, and if you've used Outlook 2013 or a Windows phone, you'll quickly understand how Mail aggregates contact details from social media accounts. One immediate point of annoyance for those who learned how to use Windows 8 will be the new gigantic and intrusive help messages that clutter the screen. I presume these will simply eventually just disappear on their own, but I've been looking for a way to make them go away immediately. For new users, these messages will be helpful, as will messages that pop up from time to time with a reminder that pressing F1 will display the help screen. This apparently is for all of those computer users who haven't realized that this, F1, has been the standard function of Windows machines for at least 20 years. 
When Windows 8 was released, an urban legend surfaced. You can't close Metro apps, the pundits said. Well, they were wrong. To close a Windows 8 Metro app, those with touch devices could just drag it to the bottom of the screen. Those with keyboards could use Alt-F4. That's the same keystroke that closes standard Windows applications. Under Windows 8.1, Alt-F4 will still close a Metro app. But if you just drag it off the bottom of the screen, it will now only be hidden. If you want to close the app, you have to drag it to the bottom and hold it down until it drowns. Well, maybe not exactly drowns. You just have to hold it there long enough that it flips over. And once it's face down, it's closed. Windows 8.1 on my primary desktop feels slower than Windows 8. Deleting messages from Thunderbird, for example, can take nearly a second and a half. This should be instantaneous. Now, I don't see this problem on a notebook computer that's also been upgraded to Windows 8.1, and I haven't been able to identify the source of the problem, so this may not be Windows 8.1's problem. Windows 8 includes performance and information tools in the control panel. But this is missing in version 8.1. At least it's missing in the enterprise version of 8.1. This is a tool that's designed primarily for people who have no other way to test their computer's performance, so its absence from the enterprise version might be intentional. Using standard hardware testing applications, I can't find any problems that can be traced to any new or missing device drivers. Most applications continue to work normally, so I am inclined to disregard the performance problem with Thunderbird. However, a vast antivirus doesn't work either under Windows 8.1. I'm sure this will be remedied in a few days when Windows 8.1 is generally available, but it was an unexpected and unpleasant diversion for me. So where do we go from here? Well, if you're using Windows XP, now is the time to upgrade really. Support will soon end for XP. You avoided Vista, good for you, and you skipped Windows 7, and I wonder why. But XP is more than 10 years old. It's outmoded in many ways. Increasingly, new applications won't run on an XP machine. Those who are using Windows 7, on the other hand, have a more nuanced decision. If you're happy with Windows 7, there is no compelling reason to upgrade the computer to Windows 8.1. When you buy a new computer, you'll probably bring it home with Windows 8.1 or whatever follows Windows 8.1. Although some computers still are available with Windows 7, I wouldn't buy one today. When you're in the market for a new Windows computer, choose the current version of the operating system. Save yourself some trouble. Procedures to protect computers have changed considerably since the early days of desktop computing. In the 1980s, when antivirus applications were updated once or twice a year, I said that protective applications really weren't necessary unless you downloaded a lot of software from sketchy bulletin board systems. This, of course, was well before internet connections were readily available. Your point of view probably has changed several times since then. I know mine has. With the advent of the Internet, it was clear that everyone needed antivirus protection. Companies that made these products started updating them several times a year, then monthly. Now updates can occur several times a day. 
Somewhere around the turn of the century, I began expecting operating system manufacturers, Microsoft and Apple, for example, to bring antivirus protection in-house and include it as part of the operating system. That seemed to be the most logical approach because the people who wrote the operating system would seemingly know the most about how to protect it. Microsoft Security Essentials appeared to be that product, at least for Microsoft, and initially it was a strong contender. Over the years, though, it has not kept up with the changing menagerie of threats. MSE is not a core function for Microsoft, so it probably doesn't receive the resources it really needs. At Symantec, Avast, McAfee, and all the other providers of protective software, protecting computers is the core business. And even the free offerings from those companies have better protection than MSE does. I've been using the free version of Avast for several years. Definitions are updated at least daily, but when I installed Windows 8.1, Avast was disabled. The diagnostic message simply said that Avast couldn't start. Windows noticed that no protective measures were in place and automatically activated MSE. Now, I'm probably careful enough to survive with MSE, but it's easy enough to make a really dumb mistake. So I started looking around. Last week, I talked with Chip Witt of Webroot about protection from phishing attacks. And after that interview, I reviewed the company's website. So I decided to give Webroot a try. Webroot is a cloud-based, crowd-sourced system of protective applications. My opinion now is that cloud-based systems make far more sense than a service offered either by operating system developers or by outside vendors that aren't cloud-based. I don't yet know whether Webroot is the right solution for me, but I started using it on a free trial basis on five computers, and before the trial period ended or even really got started, I paid for a subscription. So I'll let you know how it works out. Matt Cruz started working on a program he called Better Facebook in 2009. Now it's called Social Fixer. Initially, he created the application because he was annoyed that he couldn't get rid of posts he'd already read and only see the new stuff. Eventually, he added features that allow Facebook users to create the exact interface they want. Well, now, as you might expect, Facebook is threatening to sue him. A single programmer stands little chance of being able to prevail against a mammoth corporation, so Facebook will eventually win, and Cruz will probably be forced to stop offering Social Fixer. Is this a great country or what? Facebook has demanded that Cruz remove some of the features that make the application useful. Facebook has taken down Cruz's Facebook page and, as I mentioned, threatens to sue him. If Cruz refuses to remove the most useful features of the application, Cruz says he was told that the case would be sent over to the legal department. 
Facebook may not have limitless resources, but even a frivolous lawsuit against an individual could ruin the individual financially. Cruz says any threat of legal action is a big deal. I'm a one-man operation. If I were sued for whatever reason, I would find it very difficult to defend myself. Even if the suit was without merit, I would be risking my personal life to maintain a tabbed news feed for users, and I just can't do that to my family. So Facebook clearly is going to win. If you're a Facebook user, maybe you're familiar with the recommended pages function over on the right-hand side. I have an irrational dislike for recommended pages, and it took me a while, but I think I know why I detest this feature. Typically, there's a little motion over there, and eventually I look over, and about the time I see something that maybe might interest me, I move the mouse toward it, and it goes away. It's replaced by something else. So if Facebook can't figure out a way to provide this feature in a way that makes it usable, or at least not annoying, I don't want it. I want it to go away. Social Fixer allows me to remove it, but that's only the beginning. In the left column, there is a Messages link. Now, what most people don't know is there's also an Other link that leads to messages from people who aren't yet your friends. Sometimes these messages are spams, but sometimes they're from people you might want to know. And unless you remember to check, at least occasionally, you'll never know they're there. Social Fixer makes it possible to reveal this section so that it's always visible. Among the other features I consider useful is the ability to list all pages that I've liked in the left column. Because Facebook doesn't always show content from those pages, even after I've liked them, this is a way to check for new information. Does Facebook somehow consider this to be a threat to their business model? Or put another way, what exactly are Mark Zuckerberg and his company afraid that this lone programmer will do? The Social Fixer settings panel hints at the vast number of options that users have. Cruise's application isn't designed simply to turn off unwanted functions, but to add features that Facebook subscribers will find useful. There are literally dozens of improvements listed on the various settings screens. Why is Facebook incapable of providing these functions itself? Why doesn't Facebook just buy Social Fixer and incorporate the improvements? So here we have a lone programmer who saw several ways to improve Facebook, decided to make the changes, and then offered them at no cost to Facebook users. As thanks, Zuckerberg and company threatened to sue. You might feel there's something wrong with that approach. If you do, you might want to write abuse at facebook.com, you'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and ask or perhaps even demand that they restore the social fixer page. In the meantime, you might want to download Social Fixer as an add-on for your browser. You'll find a link to do that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The bottom line for Social Fixer, five cats. Create a way to improve Facebook and face a Facebook suit. Social Fixer apparently has frightened Mark Zuckerberg so much that he's planning to have his legal team file suit against the creator. That's too bad, because the application makes Facebook far more usable than Facebook's developers have been able to make it. If you want to experience Facebook the way Facebook should be experienced, download the add-on. It's available for all browsers except Internet Explorer, and see for yourself. Downloads and additional details are available on the Social Fixer website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website.
In short circuits, the end of Obama. Have you been receiving ominous messages such as these from Porter Stansberry or others? For the past several days, I've received at least five of them a day. Maybe you wonder who Porter Stansberry is. I certainly did. For one thing, besides being a publisher, he is a convicted fraudster. The Wikipedia article about Stansberry notes that he was subpoenaed by the SEC in 2002. In 2003, the SEC charged him with fraudulent practices. And in 2007, he was fined $1.5 million for security fraud. Apparently, he doesn't learn. He runs Stansberry and Associates Investment Research, private publishing company based in Baltimore, Maryland, according to the Wikipedia article. And Wikipedia continues, he writes a monthly newsletter, Stansberry's Investment Advisory, which deals with alleged investments. The latest spam is all about buying gold because of the disaster that will soon happen. What disaster, you may ask? Well, if you follow the link in one of his messages, you'll be entertained by a seemingly never-ending series of absurd claims that are positioned as facts. No doubt Stansberry will find some suckers, and anyone who's inclined to believe those kinds of reports might want to consider whether an honest, legitimate company would send dozens of copies of the same message, all disguised to appear that they're from a variety of addresses, to promote the kind of scheme that con artists used well before the internet even existed. And if that's not enough, a second opinion would be in order, and a third, so you'll find links on the TechBiter Worldwide website to a three-page report by investigative reporter Brian Deere. He's been watching Stansberry operate for several years. And you'll find a link to an article by Stephen Nelson, the associate editor in Daily Caller, an organization founded by Tucker Carlson, who's a 20-year veteran journalist, and Neil Patel, who's the former chief policy advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney. The article is straightforward about calling Stansbury a fraudster. Adobe is obviously an attractive target for many reasons. Gaining access to source code for the many and varied applications Adobe provides would be one. Another would be user accounts for the Creative Cloud service. Adobe says that recent attacks have gained entry to some parts of their systems. So now what? Well, if your Adobe ID was exposed, Adobe automatically reset it so that no access would be possible. Your login would fail, and then you'd be offered the ability to create a new password. To ensure that you are who you say you are, you would need to select an option on the website for Adobe to send a special link to your registered email address. If your Adobe ID wasn't exposed, you should still reset your password, and Adobe has sent messages to explain how. The method simply involves going to adobe.com, go password reset, you'll find that link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. There, you provide your registered email address, the one that Adobe has on record for you, and follow the instructions that Adobe will send you. In the meantime, Adobe is working with security experts to update its procedures. This week, the new login procedures were being rolled out to services such as Adobe Forums. Adobe has multiple systems and services, each with its own ID, though. 
Adobe ID is a separate system from the user ID and logins associated with EchoSign, Behance, Typekit, Marketing Cloud, and Connect Pro. Adobe recommends changing the passwords for any of those services if they used the same password that you'd set for Adobe ID. And this announcement, by the way, provides yet another opportunity for NetScum to steal passwords because users now will expect messages with information about password resets from Adobe. It'd be really tempting to just click on any such message that arrives in your inbox, but a better choice would be to type the web URL that you'll find on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And don't necessarily click the link on my website. Type the URL. At that point, within seconds seconds, you will receive a message from Adobe with the other link that will allow you to reset your password. That's about as safe as it can be made, but be careful out there. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.